And then competitiveness is part of that. When, when you have a perception and you're sure that you are right, changing that perception is very difficult because people don't look at why you've, you've got that perception and what strategies you can use to help people change their perception. People automatically argue. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Scott. I've recently begun to suspect that we as a society favor competition over cooperation to our detriment. As children, we're trained to compete. We play competitive board games like Sorry and Monopoly, where you win by sabotaging the other players. We almost fetishize competitive sports, spending hundreds of billions of dollars watching athletes violently punish each other in some cases. It would seem that these attitudes carry over into the political arena. States and religions and corporations all compete for power over the people leaving a trail of broken lives and bodies in their wake. And yet, it can also be argued that competition brings out the best in people. The dominant capitalist economic system is based on the concept of a group of self-interested players who collectively and competitively comprise the market, where the success of the top players advances by exploiting those less successful. Some of our most significant scientific and engineering advances came as a result of intense development work motivated by mankind's most deadly competitive endeavor, war. Radar, jet planes, nuclear technology, and even the Apollo program to go to the moon were essentially the result of this competition between nations. But cooperation also has its value. The space station was a Cold War cooperation between the U.S. and Soviet Union. The megatons to megawatts program that used Soviet nuclear warheads to power U.S. nuclear reactors was hugely successful cooperation. The European Union is a huge cooperative governance model. Universal health care, a cooperative program to share the burdens of treating the sick. I want to ask the question in this episode, can we envision a world where negative competition becomes socially unacceptable? One in which we compete without sabotaging others? or perhaps even one where nations cooperate. Should we be working to bring this about? If you enjoy what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. Please share it with your friends and come join the conversation on my Facebook group, The Rational View. An award-winning developer and producer of interactive multimedia applications, Dr. Larry Cates is Professor Emeritus, Adjunct Professor, head of the Innovative Pedagogy and Sport Performance Program and director of the Sports Technology Research Laboratory, Faculty of Kinesiology, University of Calgary. An educational psychologist, he is interested in how people learn and how they can improve their performance using innovation and technology. His research interests include performance analysis, educational technology, data analytics, virtual environments, multimedia design, collaborative online learning, pedagogy, and health and wellness education. A former competitive athlete, coach, coaching instructor, referee, and volunteer leader, Dr. Cates has firsthand experience with intense competition and the impact of competing when cooperation is mutually beneficial. 
For over 20 years, he worked on and recently patented his trademark Move Improve mobile platform for peer-to-peer self-directed and consensus learning. Dr. Cates, welcome to The Rational View. It's a pleasure to be here. So interesting. You were once a a competitive athlete. Uh, In what sport and what level did you get to? Uh, I played lacrosse, box lacrosse, and I competed at the highest levels in my province uh, and even competed in uh, national championships. Wow, that's awesome. Canadian national sport, right? Yes. That's pretty cool. So so how did you uh, go from the competitive athlete to the the university scenario? Did you have your your degree where you were getting your degree while you were competing? Yes. uh, Lacrosse was a sport that you played in the spring and summer. So most of the time I was still studying. Yes. Okay. So now you're, you're, uh, you're Professor Emeritus, head of, uh, head of a program. Uh, this is, this is quite a high profile, uh, teaching position. How, what was your, uh, career path like? Interestingly, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I started out at university and took a broad, broad range of courses, uh, and then fell into psychology. And, uh, and then educational psychology became an area that I was really fascinated with because I hated school. Uh, I was one of those people who found school boring and I wanted to change the way people learned. I haven't been as successful as I'd like to be, but have had an impact in some of my special programs that people really like. So, Interesting. So you've studied uh, cooperative and competitive behaviors. I believe in college students, uh, you, you published a paper a couple of years back, uh, that I came across and this is kind of what brought me to you. Your paper showed that, uh, an interest, a very interesting result that most people will still compete even when cooperation is obviously the best choice. Could, could you elaborate on your work a little bit and maybe give us the premise of, of what you did? Okay. Well, um, maybe I could start with a scenario. <clears throat> uh, if I had a group of 20 people and I divided them up and I said, everyone get a partner. And I asked each partner, uh, each pair, that one of the members in the group make a fist. And the other member partner, when I say go, to get that person to open their hand. So uh, what do you think? people would do? How would they react when I say go? I guess they would pull at the hand and the other people would try to resist. Right. And that is almost universally what happens. But there are one or two people who will just turn to that person and say, would you please open your hand? (laughs) Yes. What happens is people react immediately to most scenarios as a challenge and as a game and as a competition, right? And so it's almost built into our our, uh, operational systems, if you will. Uh, Kahneman talks about system one and system two, the way we, uh, when we're learning, when we're existing, uh, to survive, our system one reacts to situations. We have to look at a situation immediately. Are we in danger? Do we have to run? Uh, so that's our system one. Our system two tries to look at the situation, understand the context, and make decisions. So they should work in tandem, 
but sometimes they work independently. And for most of us, when it comes to uh, situations where we think it's a game, we assume it's a competition, and that's the way we react. Uh, so that, that is the, sort of the basis of uh, uh, my work. I'm looking at the strategies people use to make decisions. So you have a strategy, a tactics, the observations, how are you gonna solve a problem? Uh, unfortunately, most of us don't stop to think about the context uh, before we sort of engage. And uh, so uh, I can describe the research that we did, if you'd like, and, and, and give it the um, context for our discussion. Yeah, no, I'd be very interested in that. Like, what was the, the game that you had these people play and, and, and how did they treat it? Yeah, well, <clears throat> when I first started in psychology, I read a really interesting paper by Kagan and Madsen where they took children uh, and, and from different cultures, Mexican, uh, Mexican uh, children, sort of rural orientation, and uh, American children, and they gave them, a, a, was it like a checkerboard uh, with a piece in the middle. And the strategy in the game was, uh, if you move the piece to one side of the board, one person would get a prize. If you move the piece to the other side of the board, the other person would get a prize. So they're working in pairs and they get to move the piece one square at a time in any direction they want. Uh, and what, what they found, what Kagan uh, and Madsen found was that children from rural cultures tended to cooperate so they could both get prizes because there are multiple games. Whereas children from uh, more uh, from American culture and Canadian culture too, I'm afraid to say, uh, would compete and no one would get a prize. Wow. They also found that younger children tended to cooperate more than older children. So they had young kids, five and six-year-olds and, and seven and eight-year-olds, and the, the younger ones cooperated more often than the older ones. And so I was teaching uh, classes at the university and I was also a coaching instructor teaching level one theory to coaches. And I thought the first time I did it was I was talking to coaches about the idea of how they should get the kids engaged, cooperation, uh, working together and so on. And then right after that, I brought out the checkerboard with a piece and gave them a scenario that said, okay, we're going to play this game twice. It should take about a minute to play the game. And uh, there'll be two prizes. And I want you to get in pairs and work with your partner. And I'll put the piece in the middle. And you can move it in any direction you want. But if it goes to this side of the board, you, you, this person gets a prize. If it gets to that side of the board, this person gets a prize. Any questions? There weren't any questions. I said, go. I waited a minute. Almost everybody in that first uh, session, everyone competed. So at the end of the minute, I said, okay, time's up. Put the checker back in the middle of the board. And I said, okay, and play again. And they just, people moved it up, down, sideways, on an angle. But <laughs> nobody was winning. And oh so goodness. I started doing that with with education students, because I taught graduate students in education. I did it with my uh, phys ed classes. And no one was was getting... Every once in a while, somebody would, would, would get a prize. 
And then I ask them, what's your, what's your background? And so they were either native or they came from a rural community or whatever. It was almost exclusively the situations where people cooperated. And it was usually one person out of the pair that would cooperate. And I thought, well, it's a checker game. Maybe people uh, automatically think it's competitive because it's a checkerboard. What age group was that? Was that uh, was that group that you were t- testing? Uh, the first group was coaches, and they were coaches from a variety of different sports, ranging from golf to uh, soccer or whatever. Uh, and and sometimes I have just uh, like the squash association would say, we'd like our coaches trained. So I do the technical tra- te- uh, technical training theory training for them as a group. So it, did, it varied on and the age ranges could be anywhere from eighteen to 60 or, 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 or older. So, it, and it was males and females, although mostly males at the time in, in my original um, studies, because there were fewer female coaches. But then in, in education, I found the same, same results. What I tried to do was make it a little bit different. Instead of a checkerboard, I actually brought paper uh, and, and that didn't make a difference. And then I thought, okay, I have a nice computer lab with, with uh, 20 different computers and so the groups, when I was working with education or, or phys ed, physical education or kinesiology, uh, I'd have them get together on the computer make par- as partners. I'd have them go into a PowerPoint and create a grid and together and uh, that looked like a, 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 just a grid of, of lines. And then I, they, they would go into and create a little circle and color it together, decide on a joint color for the, for the thing. And then after they created the board and put the little round disc, colored disc in the middle, then I gave them the same rules as before about you can move it any way you want. There's two, two we're going to play the game twice. There's two prizes uh, and, and so on. And they still competed. And uh, it, was, it was really bizarre. I remember one time, oh, and, and then I also wanted to see if I, I had a class of 120 students looking at research and understanding research and kinesiology. So I did a mind thing. I said, I want you to imagine that you're playing this game and I would describe it. And I did that for about five or six of my classes with 120 students in them. And I said, did anyone get a prize? You know, after I played the game uh, twice, I'd say, did anyone get a prize? And very few, in most of the classes, nobody put up their hand, whether they're afraid to say they got a prize or didn't get a prize. Maybe that was it be an aspect of it. <clears throat> but I even remember one time in the class, a student said to me, uh, said out loud, uh, nobody can win. So I said, well, that's, that's a really powerful statement because if you stop to think about the strategy in your mind, you'd say, oh, yeah, nobody can win. Or you could say, oh, if we cooperate, like, you need to stop and think. You both can win. Yeah, but people aren't, and that's that's the that's the, the funny thing. So what I said it, when he said that, I thought, well, someone's going to come up with something. I said, well, play anyway. In their minds, play anyway. And I said, anyone get a prize? And people said, no one put up their hand. It was, and then when I told wow. them about wow. it, you, you see people going, oh, you know, people were really surprised. So, so yeah, this is this is you know one of the reasons I made this podcast is is to promote rational decision-making uh, in, in public arenas and address this problematic system one thinking that <laughs> doesn't seem to get us 
uh, when, you know, you can, you can rationalize a lot of things that aren't true, but rational thinking is, is seems to be missing in the public arena in a lot of cases. So you've identified in this study that the majority of peace, people will illogically compete when cooperation is better for both players. Where does this irrational predisposition come from? Why, why do we not think about this? Why do we jump to the wrong answer in the majority of cases? And, and you ask a really good question. And I, I guess the, the question is, is, is cooperation innate or learned? Or conversely, is competition innate or learned? Uh, and in some ways, it's really, we don't know the answers to that. And we don't have really good tools yet to measure those things uh, in terms of whether it's, uh, whether either of those things are naturally part of our, our existence. But I mean, we all compete uh, at, when you're born, you're competing for food and attention, affection and resources. So there is that aspect of it. But there's been research done with young children where they, where they cooperate or they, somebody calls it fair play, where they will share. Uh, at two or three years of age, they share. Uh, and that's not necessarily something they learn when they're, uh, when they're young. It just, it just happens. Uh, and, and so we're still unsure as, of, to, of why. We, we know, according to Kahneman, uh, that the system one is our survival system and self-preservation. But if you look at the evolution, we were hunter-gatherers for thousands and thousands or maybe even millions of years, depending how you calculate it. And so in order to survive as hunter-gatherers within the in-group, we had to cooperate. And, and I think cooperation comes down, is part of what happens evolutionarily we're born with a cooperative instinct, at least within our inner group, right? And, and there is some evidence to suggest that um, people who have a strong inner group are unlikely to share uh, with the, uh, people outside the inner group. And so there's much more competition between groups. Uh, so, th so that's a fairly straightforward, makes, makes sense. But... Uh, we, we create a very competitive environment. If you think about education, for example, when we, when we study, when we're involved in education, everything is competitive. Right? Yeah. Yes. We, and... The teachers and the education system have set us up to compete. So the example I would give is uh, when, when do children first see each other, right? I've taught kids as young as three in phys ed classes, right? So I've had an opportunity to watch them when they're three all the way up to university. And I've taught courses for even seniors. So I have a sense of, of, of how people react over lifespan. But when I watch two, three, four, even five-year-old kids, they're still pretty focused on themselves. They will cooperate and do things together. But uh, especially if you create situations where they can cooperate and do cooperative activities. <clears throat> but 
they are focused on learning the tasks themselves. So if I say, try this, three, four, five-year-olds will all try it. But there comes a point where they start to notice the other kids and start to compare themselves to the other kids. And from a physical perspective, not even thinking about math or science, but just physical education, physical literacy, the ability to have comfort with your body, right? At a certain point, kids will notice, especially young, young girls will notice that they can't do something that somebody else can. They get embarrassed by, if you have a beam and they walk across the beam, some kids can walk across the beam, some kids fall off the beam. When they're really young, they get back up and do it again. But as they get older and they fall off and other kids notice and they start to laugh, people stop participating. So we have a whole large segment of society where people have never really learned about their bodies and how to control their bodies and and how to be comfortable in multiple environments. They just stopped being physically active because they were embarrassed when they were younger. So we start to see this competition and comparing yourself to other people uh, probably somewhere in the age range of five to seven and then you see people not wanting to participate yeah i I think there's you know a couple different aspects of competition from from my perspective there's competition where you're comparing yourself to others and there's competition where you're playing a game where you sabotage the other player and i i see those as two different uh, aspects. I think one is healthy and one is is maybe less healthy and, and reflects uh, a different mindset, if you will. Um, do you make that distinction at all? I I, mu- I must say that I I am concerned about the the, the video games that people play. Uh, it, it, it's very uh, very popular. Um, it, you can see like the war games where they small groups work together to defeat the other group and they do sabotage each other and, and, and so on. So, so that, that is uh, inherently competitive, right? But you do see the cooperative aspects and there's positive aspects to, to the video games. Uh, people learn strategy and tactics and observation, and those are very valuable skills, right? Uh, but, my focus is really on the education system because that's where I think we create the competitive environment. Uh, kids get marks and they compare each other's marks and get awards for being the, getting the highest performance. And we don't have in the curriculum a lot of things associated with cooperative activities. And, and it, it, people aren't talking about strategies and tactics. And the other thing that's a problem uh, is that we don't talk about mutually beneficial situations. We don't talk about context. I, 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 I talk about, I tell my students, location, 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 that makes sense. You have to have context, context, context. You need to understand how things are organized and, and, and what are the issues before you can make good decisions. And the third thing I say is perception, perception, perception. You need to understand a person's perspective, right? So if you understand where they're coming from, so their, their perception, 
That's the reality. But you, you cannot convince somebody that they're wrong if that is their perception. So you, you have to understand their perception and look at strategies to help them see where they might be going wrong within their perception. But we all have this tendency to say, you're wrong. Here is the right answer. Indeed. And, and yeah, so that's, that's the problem, I think, with why, and, and competitiveness is part of that. When, when you have a perception and you're sure that you are right, changing that perception is very difficult because people don't look at why you've, you've got that perception and what strategies you can use to help people change their perception. People automatically argue. Yeah, and it, it's not only in the education system. It's also, um, you know, and you're bringing, when we're bringing up people in, in our society, the, the board games that people play like Sorry and Monopoly are all, you're, you're out to get the other guy and sabotage them. There's very few cooperative board games that people are socialized to. Uh, you know, there's a few more that are coming out. You know, there's Pandemic and there's some really, I mean, I, I like I like some of these board games and the cooperative ones are, are quite fun and they teach a different lesson, I think, but there's very few of them. Do you notice that? It, that the, the problem is since we're all, at least in, in, in uh the industrialized side of the world, uh, we've already been primed to be competitive. And so we'll play competitive games. Uh, so that, that's, that's, the, that's the problem. Uh, how do we change that? How do we get people to be more cooperative? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know uh, there's... There's basically, um, you know, professional sports players. They seem to make out of proportion salaries with respect to their impact or contribution to society. You know, the Romans love their gladiators. I'm wondering if this love affair with competitive sports is a reflection of our culture uh, of competition. Uh, you know, we idolize the competition. We gravitate to this. And, and the nature versus learning question that you brought up earlier is, is interesting as well, that we start out being much more cooperative as, uh, you know, as toddlers, basically, and then we learn to compete. Um, I'm wondering, now there, there's value, obviously, in competition. It helps us you know, it, it motivates us to strive and to better ourselves. But is there a way to um, de-emphasize the negative aspects of competition and emphasize the positive uh, parts of competition and cooperation? Are you looking into that in your work? Uh, in a sense, uh, I, I, I've evolved a little bit more into the, the technological aspects. So I'll explain that in a second. But I think competition is good, and I think cooperation is, is good as well, but it's understanding the context and mm -hmm. getting a sense mm -hmm. of when, when should you compete and when should you cooperate. Right. Because definitely, if you're, if you're competing, you strive to, you're ta very task-oriented, you're striving to be successful and to advance things. So there is a very positive aspect to competition. I don't want to denigrate it at all. I'm just saying that because we're so focused on competition, even in education, that people don't see opportunities for mutually beneficial situations. And I've always, over the last 20 years, 
I sort of coined the term mutually beneficial situations. So I'd always talk to my students, okay, what's an MBS here? What's, what's a mutually beneficial situation? How can we make this a positive? And, and that's what we need to do is we need to get people to, to see where they can work together. Yes. My, my latest research is in the area of um, peer-to-peer learning and self-assessment. I think that if we get people to reflect and to accurately evaluate their own performances or working in pairs or in groups to evaluate performance, then you can really start to see more cooperation. As an example, um, when, when people teach in school now, especially in the physical education field, uh, uh, the phys ed teacher will have a lot, 30 students in a class, perhaps, right? They want to teach a concept and then they'll say, all right, I want you to get into pairs and I want you to work with each other. One person, uh, so say you're learning to throw, throw a ball, one person throws and the other one looks at their throwing and gives them advice based on the teacher having told them to do it right. Here are the main components, do the, the, these six or eight things. Now, and we, they do it with even young children, like five-year-olds. I think partly it makes the class easier for the teacher in the sense that now you only have 15 pairs to look at instead of 30 individuals. They can go around and help. And uh, it makes the kids um, less uh, unfocused. It focuses the kids mm-hmm. more. Uh, okay. So what, what I've done is they've said, okay, that's great, the idea of peer-to-peer learning, but they really can't give each other great advice. Right. Right. Um, and and I, I started giving them sheets with, with the pictures of what each component looked like, and they could look at the sheet and they'd watch. Each person would watch the other and then comment that they do it, yes or no, right, for each component, and then they could discuss it. So if you give them a bit of structure, it makes a difference. And I've done some research that looks at it. If you use video, if you use a structured piece of paper with pictures on it, or if you combine the two together and have a video with the structure. And that's actually my patent is to, to look at Move Improve is the name of the program, the trademark name of the program that I've created. But it's a tablet or a phone-based uh, tool that lets people um, look at a skill. You put the the activity and the skill onto your app uh, on your app and you uh, look at the video of a model performing and the model performs the skill so both people look at it and they look at the component list of all the aspects of that skill then we work in pairs i take a video of you and then we go through and we assess did we do all of those components right then after you've done that you reverse and then i video you doing it and then we discuss it. So what you're doing is you're creating a cooperation where you're helping each other learn. And I think whether you're using technology or if you're in the school and you're teaching math, whatever it is, I think we need more peer-to-peer, more group where people understand the objective and the context is you're helping each other. Because if you, you're getting into med school, I have to get a higher mark than you do. Right. And I have to go out and do all these wonderful things so that my resume will look superior to yours. 
I'm reminded of that movie where the guy wants to get into Harvard and he has a 4.0 average. And the, the dean says to him, everybody who applies here has a 4.0 average. What makes you better? <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that's the nature of the way we set things up now is to be competitive. And how, how can I be better than the next person to, to move forward? Uh, and we lose out on great opportunities where people can cooperate and work together. Yeah, the, the context-specific uh, aspects of recognizing when it's appropriate to compete is, is the key here, I think, and that's where the rationality comes into it. Now, you, you've made an observation in your research that there's a cultural component to this predisposition to competition, that people from rural communities tend to cooperate more. These are the ones that break the paradigm of, of always competing. And it's a little surprising that people from urban areas don't tend to cooperate as much since they're always you know, around a lot of people. Uh, can you expand a little bit on the factors that play in, in that sort of selection? Yes, the, the rural communities need to work together to to be successful. Like they help each other because you're, you, you know, things happen. They have to build things together. It's there's much more cooperation in order to survive. Uh, and but it also is the in group. There's some research that says that within your in group you'll cooperate. But you might not cooperate with the out-group. People are outside of that uh, in-group. Whereas urban people, when they do cooperate, are more likely to cooperate across groups. And, and so the interesting observation was we, we saw that people who came from rural communities or native communities and so on still cooperated um, in, in, our, in the games that we were talking about. Not all, but, but, but some. Uh, and the answer about the in-group, out-group is that they may have expanded their in-group right, to the people who they're in, where they're studying together with and so on, may have been part, have been added to the in-group. And, and that's why they were more cooperative. So the, the issue is, yes, rural community tends to cooperate more. One of the study, there hasn't been a study where you pair up, say, one rural person with one uh, urban person to see uh, what happens in the scenario. Yeah, I, I can imagine there is some aspect of um, fear of lack of reciprocation involved in these these game scenarios. Like in, in, the, in the checkerboard one that you, you suggest, one of them has to basically give up first in the hopes that it will be reciprocated. And right. if you don't have any background on your partner, you don't know what their character is. Will they reciprocate? That is, is that is that part of the the calculus that goes on here? Is there an actual rational calculus behind lack of competition, or is it irrational? <laughs> no, uh, I, I think initially everything's irrational if you immediately compete, like with uh, making the fist. Right. And, and when I ask that question, people always say, oh, yeah, well, you're going to try and op- make that guy open his hand. So very few people would say, please open your hand, uh, which would be the obvious thing if you stopped and thought about it. So why would I why can't I ask him to get, get them to open the hand? Ask. Uh, but it's a trust issue. Right. Um, if you have a high trust in, in people, you're more likely to cooperate. If you are low trust you're less likely to cooperate. Uh, and taking the risk, there's, there's, there's a number of games uh, 
there's the prisoner's dilemma game yes, yes. And, and the ultimate game. Uh, and those games also require that you, you trust the other person, right? So in the prisoner dilemma game, you, you've both been uh, arrested, as it were, and you're, you have choices. You can confess or not confess. And the rules are if, if both of you, or you can keep silent, right? Keep silent or confess. Okay. Uh, if both of you keep silent, uh, then you'll be set free. If one confess, if you confess, uh, then you actually get a reward for con- for confessing if the other person keeps silent, right? Mm. So you can actually do well if you confess relative to the other person. And if you both confess, you, you, um, are un- you get nothing, right? Right, so, okay. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting that a lot of people will confess uh, instead of keeping silent. But it, it, it's and uh, and the and the ultimate game is where one person's given ten dollars or some sum of money, and he has he try the responder, the person who gets the money, and the responder is he the person who has the money is supposed to say, uh, okay, how much money would I be willing to give to 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 split uh and uh, you can say half like five and five or i'll give you nine and you can have one uh if i accept if i'm the responder and i accept your then you get the money i get the money so i i, I get nine you get one um but the responders tend if we, if the responder says no neither of you gets any money right so what's what's a fair split I have 10 bucks. If I say, I'll give you five, then you'll, you'll probably respond yes right away. And you both get $5. But at what point will I be unhappy with you and say, no, you're going to take the majority of it. You can have a zero. And I say, no. Interesting. Right? And, and if you get past the, like six and four, people tend to respond. No. Even though they're getting, even though they're better off saying yes, no matter what they get. Exactly. They're angry at the person for, for taking too much. Right. It's the, the concept is fair play, right? So the idea is what is fair play? Uh, and there's been some very interesting studies around the idea of fair play. And, and that's one of the studies uh, with three-year-olds where they have a sense of fair play. And, 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 they, and they share things. If people cooperate, then they, they share whatever was part of the, the activity. Uh, and, and, and that concept of fair play is in all of us. You look at a situation and say, is that fair? Right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we see that in the, in the different games that people play. Yeah, and I think this also reflects on our economic models as a society. You know, there's capitalism, which is, you know, the self-interested greed model of the market uh, is is at the heart of financial success. And we're taught this, uh, that self-interested behavior is, is the best. And it's kind of beat into us from an early age, whereas in socialism where you cooperate is bad and, and no one is motivated to do anything. Uh, so I see a lot of, um, 
parallels between your 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 work in competitive sports and the economics. Uh, and in fact, I think there's recent studies that show you know sociopathic behaviors in men are seen as leadership qualities in corporate culture, uh, and there, there's a uh, an increase in sociopaths as you go up the uh, the management scale um, because of this ethos of self-interest at the heart of capitalism. Uh, does this contribute to to how people are trained in society? Are we being trained for our economic system? That's a, a tough question. Uh, the I, I tend to be apolitical, uh, and so I, I see... A positive. See, in Canada, we have a a universal health system, right? Uh, and, and when it first came in, um, the people really opposed to it. If if the people in the country could vote on universal health care back in the '60s, they would have voted against it, right? Uh, but if they were to vote today, if you said I've decided we're going to cancel universal health care and had a countrywide vote, massive support against. They, it, people want their health care system. They love it. Uh, there's, there's problems with it, but they wouldn't give it up, right? Same thing. Canada had a flag. We changed our flag in the 60s. If you'd had a vote, the vast majority of Canadians would have voted against changing our flag. If you had a vote today, and you said, we're changing back to the old flag. 95% or more, I guarantee you, of, our, of Canadians would say, absolutely not. So it, it's all in the way we've been trained to think, right? Uh, I think capitalism has a, a, a major role in advancing ideas. People see an opportunity to make money. Uh, but a lot of uh, capitalists are also uh, top donors, right? Uh, in terms of charities and providing programming and stuff like that. Many there are many that aren't, but there are many that are. So it it's not a either or situation. Um, it's again going back to context. Yeah, that's very important. So how do, how do we train people to be more aware of context and to not um, just default to the wrong behavior the, or an irrational behavior? How do, we, how do we break the mold that we've gotten people into through classroom training? <laughs> Excellent uh, question. Uh, when I start a lecture, my very first lecture, I tell people about... Uh, uh, Chris Hadfield, who is a very famous Canadian. Uh, he was an astronaut, uh, the first Canadian to be uh, the head of the space station, uh, non-American to be a head of the space station. Um, actually played his guitar on the space station. He used to speak to school kids on a weekly basis while he was up in space. And I happened to listen to one of the broadcasts uh, uh, just out of interest. And a kid asked him, he says, what does it take to be successful? And he answered uh, around three, three concepts. And uh, I modified it to make it uh, easier to, to understand, but I quote him as having said it, more or less is what he said. And one is to pursue knowledge, right? 
We should pursue knowledge. The other one is maintain good health. And the third is practice good decision-making. And you know, so all of those three, when I heard him talk about that, my head goes, that's exactly my philosophy, right? And so I always put that up as a, on the screen, to be successful, according to Chris Hadfield. Uh, and what we need to do is we need to get people thinking about that. We want, we're not wanting to know. Kids actually start out, and this is the saddest thing for me. You take kids, and, and I, my granddaughters are just starting school. They're four and five years of age. And, and when I take them to school, they're so excited, and they're happy to be there, and so on. But then as they get older, seven, eight, nine, their enthusiasm for school, kids' enthusiasm for school goes down and down and down. And they don't look happy when they come to school. The older kids, they sort of come in, they're, they're, they're miserable and, and so on. So what happens from the time kids are four or five and want to be at school, want to learn, and, and by the time they're in grade 12, they just want to get out, right? Uh, we have created an environment where there's not a, a thirst for knowledge. We have to change the environment to pursuing knowledge, to be excited by learning, and how do we get that back? So that's number one. We need people to think about their health. Because without that, you have nothing. And, and no, people don't. They eat poorly. They don't exercise. None of those things. But the third point, the practicing good decision-making, we all make bad decisions. What we have to do is reduce the number of bad decisions we make. We, the strategy is to come up with ways of maybe courses that teach people about decision-making. I find the work of uh, Kahneman and Tversky a, a, a phenomenal work that they did. And they've actually, uh, uh, Kahneman wrote a book. Tversky uh, died um, early. And so Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics, right? And he was a psychologist. So what's the psychologist doing winning a uh, the Nobel Prize for, for economics, because he looked at the way people learn, the way people make decisions, the way people uh, approach problems, right? And they did research on all of that, and all of that applies to economics. How we make decisions, how we spend, how we how we would spend money, how we all those kinds of things they talk about in their research, and because they only give the Nobel Prizes to people who are alive, Kahneman got it, but both of them would have ordinarily gotten it if, if Tversky had stayed alive. But anyway, that is what we need to do. We need to look at the work of people like Kahneman, and we need everyone needs to start seeing why we make decisions and how we make decisions, and that will improve our decision-making. So that would be my big plug. Hello there, and... Uh, looking at decision-making, understanding. So go back to my original point, context, right? And perception. If you understand context and you understand perception and, and where people are coming from, then you can make better decisions. Yeah. I, I think a lot of it is, is training as well. And I think, you know, we're trained to be competitive and not 
to value uh, cooperation in a lot of cases. And this is, I think, because the politicization of capitalism versus socialism at the heart of our society in a lot of cases, because as you say, there are cultures where cooperation is a thing that is trained into people. And there are different aspects to that, as you mentioned. Um, and I think if we are to break the mold, we also need to look at more cooperative uh, tra training more cooperative games for children, for example, uh, I think that might have an impact. Um, but it, as you say, it's got to be um, the education system is is also to blame for for where we're at. So I, I'm very uh, interested in 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 how education treats this and how you know, as you say, people get upset at education once they've been in the system for long enough it's not it should be a thirst for knowledge it's it it's you know and i felt the same thing through through the system the system beats you down and 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 makes you uncomfortable with learning uh it should be the opposite way around and then good luck on on your work to to change that that's it's a it's a huge burden to <laughs> to try to turn turn the inertia as it were of our system because it's difficult, right? And we're getting to the end of our time slot here. Uh, so I'd just like to thank you again for coming on the show and sharing your, your work with us. Uh, it's been great to talk to you uh, and have learned quite a bit. For coming on the show, I'm going to send you a, a Rational View t-shirt. Uh, thank you. So thanks for spending your time. I appreciate talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much and good luck with all your work. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.